0: please turn with me to mark chapter 10 we'll be starting in verse 32 today and going through verse 45 not quite through the end of mark 10 but getting there and as we go to god's word let's go to him again and pray that he would help us as we read from his word let's let's pray Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, help us to see ourselves in it, not as the star of the show, but as the ones that need a savior. Remind us why we need a savior, Lord Jesus. Show us our need for you, because we forget that more than we forget anything. Make us wise to that that we need you more and more convict us of our sin show us the truth we pray this in your holy name amen as i worked through this passage this week it made me think of this constant refrain really that has been something of the last 20 years maybe 30 Years that you've seen more and more and it's this idea about finding your purpose in life what does that look like and mean and so I looked at some of the different articles that are out there about this and you can imagine there's some pretty fun stuff out there most of them had some sort of number attached to them you know like six ways, five ways because people can't be bothered to read anything but headings anymore and so that's, they just have to make things really pithy, you know like How to find your life's purpose in four easy steps. That's pretty incredible. All right, ten tips to learn how to find your passion. Not nine, ten. Seven tips for finding your purpose, like it's a hidden gem, and this person is going to provide you with the treasure map. You just have to go look for it. This is the way that our society is structured. It's really the way that it's always been structured, honestly, since people have been in societies, and it's this. Basically, who is the best? Okay, then I want to know how to be like the best, so I'm going to read their life. I'm going to read how they do life. Our lives are following the pursuit of some kind of thing in society. Money, reputation, power, and it's all simply for the sake of having them. You ask a person why do you need more money if they already have all that they want, and they'll just say, "Well, I, I need more money to to have more money, more stuff." Why do you want more reputation? Well, I want to be uh, I want to be important. Why do you need more power? Well, to to be powerful. It's interesting the the answers that people will give to questions like that. So. It shouldn't come as any surprise to us then, if people have always been that way, to find people in the Bible acting like this. And that's sure enough what we find. We see it all over the place in the Scriptures. And in today's passage we see the disciples of Jesus Christ acting like this again. This isn't the first time that they've done this. And they want to be the best. Is it wrong to have goals? No. Is it wrong to want success and to work hard for things? Absolutely not. In fact, we should be doing those things. We are made to be hard workers and to want to do things yet why were we made to do these things for us for our glory no in our text today we'll see the answer come right to the top and we'll see how jesus navigates through it to help us find what should be important to us then and as we look at the text i want to divide it into three main ideas our understanding of his suffering our response to his suffering, and then finally our call to his service. And so with that, look with me together at Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem And kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them you do not know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized and they said to him we are able and Jesus said to them the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant but it is For those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it. They began to be indignant. At James and John. Jesus called them to to him. And said to them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles. Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whatever would be great among you. must, Or whoever would be great among you. Must be at your must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many amen this is god's word you may be seated so just a little context here we are in mark chapter 10 and we're dealing with jesus saying what's about to happen to him and he goes into great detail this time and then the disciples, you know, reacting to that in a certain way. And this is not new. In fact, back in chapter 8, we see Jesus doing many signs and wonders. And then he, after he does those signs and wonders, he goes to his disciples and he tells them, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. Afterward, right after this, in fact, Peter attempts to create, correct his creator. No, no, Jesus. That's not going to happen to you because, you know, that's the sensible thing to do. Go up to Jesus, Lord of all creation, son of God, and correct him. And then if you go back to chapter nine, we see Jesus is transfigured. And then remember, he dispossesses the little boy of his demon. And then he tells his disciples after this, I'm going to die. And after three days, I'm going to be raised again. And afterward, the disciples can be overheard having a conversation about which one of them is indeed the greatest. Because, you know, your friend says he's going to be rejected and die, and it's appropriate, that's the right time to talk about then how great you are. So again today, Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die and be risen again. And we'd like to think that they would get it by now, but they don't. They again strike up the old greatness argument because it hasn't been settled. If you ever wonder how easy it is to slip into the attitude that you are super special and that others might not be so special, just read these three passages together. Remember, this is Peter, James, and John. This is the twelve disciples. This is the one that wrote, these are the ones that wrote most of the New Testament. They're a lot better than we are. So if you ever think, I no, that's not me. I wouldn't do that. Just go back and read their reactions to Jesus telling them these things. We're going to see our own hearts in the mirror as we see the disciples ask Jesus a question about their greatness. That brings us to our first point, the understanding his suffering. Look again at verses 32 through 34. And I'll kind of summarize for us. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in a high place, so it was common to say that someone was going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who were following were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. And notice the detail Jesus goes into here. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. It will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will mock him and spit him and flog him and kill him. You get a picture of this procession a little bit. So I understand it's common for the rabbi to walk out in front of the disciples. Very common uh, practice. You still see that today in Orthodox Judaism. And there was a little bit of solemnity of their walking. You get this picture that it says... They were amazed, but it was also mixed with fear. These are really two seemingly different emotions, but they can be mixed together. There's a lot of different emotions present as they are nearing the city of Jerusalem. We're we're getting ready to walk into the gates of Jerusalem, and there's going to be a big parade for Jesus. And so there's a whole lot of emotions going on, a whole lot of anticipation. And so you get that when you read these words, they were amazed, and afraid jesus hadn't hidden anything from them but notice he adds some details that he hadn't added before in our passage today not only is he going to be rejected killed and then resurrected but he's going to be mocked he is going to be spit on he is going to be beat this isn't going to be a normal execution where there's a sentence and then the deed is done this is going to be a whole parade of insults and humiliation. And now his disciples are hearing this. This is this is the uh, Son of Man. This is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And he is going to be insulted by Gentiles? It's kind of crazy. So as we read these words, again, put the whole book into context here. Most of Jesus' interactions with people have been miraculous, right? He's, not only has he worked signs and wonders, but he's also been very gentle and he's been very caring among the people that he's been with. He's loved the people of Galilee as he, as he was around the Sea of Galilee and in the Decapolis as he went to those Roman cities and then even in Samaria as we read in other gospel accounts. And, and now he was going to go into Jerusalem and be mocked and beaten and spit on and killed for what? It makes no sense. It would bother us today if we saw this sort of thing happening on the news. We would, we would wonder what is going on. And it should bother us now when we read this about Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong, and he's but he's upset the religious authorities, and he's put them in their place in several times, and we've read about that, and now he is going to pay for that indiscretion. We know that his death is serving the specific purpose of redemption. We know that, but even from a worldly perspective, no one could read the account of Jesus' life, no matter who they are, and think he had it coming to him. No one can say that in their right mind. Jesus has literally done nothing wrong. So mixing that whole idea, the context of this entire book, in with the fact that Jesus has continually reminded his followers that something is coming, something is going to happen to him, we get this idea of fear and amazement that his followers are feeling here. And you'd think by now that the disciples would have realized the gravity of the situation. Perhaps reacted a bit differently to Jesus in this situation. But they don't. Jesus told them. And now they don't want to accept that he's going to leave them. But as we see, they aren't afraid to argue what benefits they're going to get. Because Jesus is coming into his kingdom. I think the church has largely followed down this same course with a bit of a caveat. We are quick to talk about the death of Jesus and His resurrection as factual events. These things happened. And churches agree with that worldwide. The ones that don't just aren't churches. We agree that these things happened to Jesus. We might even keep those facts in front of our message. We might talk about them. The real question for churches, and the one that oftentimes doesn't get answered is so what? The world increasingly just sees Jesus as another man who claimed to be Messiah. He had some followers, he was killed by Rome. There are lots of people that fit that description in Jesus's time. So when I say about Jesus, Jesus was the Messiah, he died and rose again for you, I'm stating facts. For sure, but what do those, have, those facts have to do with us? How do they change our lives? What should I then be doing in response to what I'm hearing? James and John demonstrate for us that what we look like when we are given those questions many times. So again, this is an opportunity for us to look in a mirror at ourselves. Consider the way that we view our faith. That brings me to the next point, our response to his suffering. Look with me at verses 35 through 37. So again, read 34 again, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And then look at 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Jesus was very kind and gentle, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So understand what's going on here. Jesus, for the third time, just explained what was going to happen to them to him in more detail than he had he was going to be he was going to die and raise again sure which is for the messiah to do and every old testament person every covenant kid of the old testament knew exactly what this was the messiah was going to do they were going to die and be risen again so james and john being those covenant children knew exactly what this meant jesus was about to sit on his throne as the king of kings the eternal king of david's throne He was going to do that, and they, being his very close friends, could probably get a slice of the pie if Jesus was into it. If you read Matthew's account of this in Matthew chapter 20, not only are James and John asking this, but James and John's mother actually gets into the action. This is a whole family situation going on. James and John's mother asks this of Jesus. So understand, this is what's happening Jesus says, I'm about to be spit on and mocked and beaten and killed. And James and John say, hey, give us whatever we ask. We ask that you make us number one or number two and number three. Had they given a second thought to what it meant for Jesus to suffer and die? Had they given the first consideration of what pain Jesus must have been going through internally as he sees the city of Jerusalem physically approaching them as they walk? Did they consider how they might serve Jesus at this time? Nope. They wanted to make sure that they were being taken care of in the end. So let me ask you, has the image in the mirror gotten any clearer for you? I'll try to make it a little bit more clear. I did a quick glance of some of the best-selling books in American Christendom. And listened to some of the subtitles of these books. Just pieces of those subtitles. God's power for your tomorrow, not his tomorrow, yours, determine your next move. Is this a game? It's like chess. The road back to you. Becoming what you are meant to be. These are Christian books. These aren't like some kind of weird Oprah self-help stuff. This is Christian books. And now I get it, Christians should totally be able to read the stories of other Christians and kind of how they've been encouraged in their life. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. Read about the lives of other Christians, even current ones. It's not, you know, you don't just have to read about old Christians. You can read about the ones that are still living today, and that's perfectly fine. However, we have to be careful because if we keep doing that, we quickly believe that all of this is really just about us. And finding our tomorrow and all that silly, silly stuff. Jesus did not die so that we could use his death and resurrection as a key to unlock our full potential. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine some of the things that Jesus has said? And let me put a little bit more modern spin on them. Jesus saying, the son of man came to seek and to save those who are living ordinary lives And he wants to show them how they can be everything they were meant to be. Or what if he said, I have not come to call the righteous. But the sinner to find the road back to themselves and help them determine their next move so they can find their power for tomorrow. Man, that would be just hopeless garbage can't even imagine reading that from Jesus. I would just want to put it down. It's almost as if there's nothing really wrong with it here. We just need nothing really wrong with us either. We really just need Jesus to give us a push in the right direction. And if he can do that, then I can just have my full potential. That he and I can do this together hand in hand. When we look at the request of James and John here, we might think, well, that's just awful of them to ask that. And then we'll take the gospel, we'll take the truth of it, and then we'll make it our own. We'll make it about our own glory. Remember, church, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Not just a few of those that they did that one time. But he came to save you because you were dead in your trespasses. You did not seek him. He found you. You were his enemy. He loved you anyways. And why did he do it? So that you could have your best life now? No, he did it that he, the king of kings, might be glorified. He created you for his own glory. And now he will make you a new creation. For his own glory. Now for us, of course, there is some benefit. We in this relationship with Christ, we are called joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's pretty incredible, right? But we aren't the star of heaven. Jesus is. We are those who have been saved from the fire. And so who gets the glory? Not those that are still smoldering. But the Savior gets the glory. He is not the means to the end of us having this happy ending in our lives. He is the King of glory, the bright and morning star. And for reasons only known to them, or only known to Him, He has chosen people for Himself and He's called those people My People. And he came, and he was mocked, and he was spit on, and he was beaten, and he was killed, so that they, his people, might be redeemed. This is his story. We share in it. But all praise and glory and honor and power belong to him. Not me, not you. And when we try to take it, we always look just as silly as James and John do here. Always. And when we get mad at other people who try to do that. We look just as silly as those disciples who were indignant, is what the text tells us, at James and John. And do you think that the other disciples were thinking, I'm so mad, I really wish James and John would honor Jesus more? No, probably not. They might have been, we don't know. But something tells me, because of my own heart. That they were probably more like, what makes them think that they deserve to sit there? I would do much better than them. My suspicions here are strengthened by Jesus' response as he takes a step further with them. He continues on with them. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He's he's saying, no, 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 this isn't about you now being the Lord, other ten. This isn't about us climbing up the ladder of the Christian life. The Christian life is not about us jockeying for position in some great ladder of faith. So then why are we called to be Christians? And what are we called to as Christians? If we aren't called to go out and find our purpose, then what is our purpose as Christians? How can we glorify and honor Him and give Him praise? Well, thankfully He tells us here. He makes it easy for us. And that brings us to the final point, our call to His service. Look with me again at 42 and 43. He called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you for whoever would be great among you must be your servant jesus compares how we the church how them the church should be compared to against how the world behaves in the world it's perfectly fine to kind of jockey for position as it were and even we get the idea that the way the authority manifests itself of the authority that jesus is talking about definitely the authority that we've seen in different ways over our lives is that in the world this kind of authority can be domineering or autocratic where each person is trying to be not only just in charge of something but be in charge of everything and everyone wants that it's the way our political system functions, for sure. It's the way that a lot of businesses function. It's the way that a lot of churches function, sadly, at times. But how should we be? He says, but it shall not be so among you. This is not how you, the church, are to act. Whoever would be great, he or she must serve. Whoever will be first, he or she must be a slave of all, must be last. Last. So consider that word in our dog-eat-dog society, that in order to be great, one must make themselves not so great. In order to be first, one must make themselves last. So what does this mean? For us in the church, as the people of God, our job isn't to see how far up the ladder that we can go, but to ask ourselves, how far down are we willing to go for the sake of others? Are we even, is that even on our radar to do that? Some might say, well, I'm not going to let people walk all over me. That's fine. Thankfully, Jesus let people walk all over him. Verse 45. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This has nothing to do with letting people walk all over you. That's just it. It has nothing to do with you at all, actually. So when you stop asking, what does this have to do with me? When we as a church ask, stop asking, what does this have to do with me? The world's going to be a better place because of it. Because you'll be doing the things that you do, not in your own name, not for your own glory, but in the name of Jesus Christ. If anyone ever had the right to say, I am number one, it was Jesus. Yet the very son of God gave up his seat in heaven, came down, became man and gave his life as a ransom. Notice it doesn't say that he gave his life so that you can break down the barriers or be untamed or go wash your face or whatever other stupid book titles there are. These books might have some wisdom in them. I don't know, but Christ came as a ransom. What is a ransom? What ransom? Well, if you're a believer, it's the price that was on your head. It's the debt that you owed because of your sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible tells us. And for your sin, for that debt that you owed, for that price that you owed, he died. But the gift of God is eternal life. And he was risen so that you might share in that eternal life. As a believer, it's the price that was on our heads. He paid that ransom. What about for the unbeliever here? Well, if that's you, hear this and understand the price is currently on your head. The wages of sin is death. If you remain in your unbelief as an unbeliever, rather than Jesus standing in your place, you will stand in your own place before the father. And that ransom will remain unpaid and you have no ability, friend, to pay it. So rather than face the father in your sin... Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. So in conclusion. Jesus came not to serve. Or came not to be served. But to serve. Let me ask you this. Have you come to be served? Or have you come to serve? Not just here at Redeemer. That's a good question for you to ask. But how are you serving in your life every day? Are you waiting for someone to sit sit you next to important people? Do you think you are important people? But it shall not be that way among you. Remember what Jesus tells us. Rather than being great, be a servant. Rather than being first, be last. Serve someone. And when it comes to the lost world, rather than point fingers and say, you guys should serve people like me. Instead, ask, do you know about the great servant, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many? Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we read these words that you came not to be served, but to serve, that you came to give your life as a ransom for many. Lord, help us, because so often we want to be served. We think that there wasn't a ransom on our head. In fact, we have somehow even worked our way to our own justice. We have worked our way past what was owed, that the wages of our sin is no longer death. We have actually earned a portion of the things that you have given us. Lord, help us. Help us to see that the gift of God, it's a gift, is eternal life. Help us to receive that gift and understand it and see it as that and that we have nothing to bring, but only to you do we have to cling. And Lord, help us to have that same message to a lost world, that it's only you that we have to offer. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.